you want to be able to have every single person who works at the company be able to articulate why it is that they come to work every day. Because honestly, brands are built from the inside. The people who work at Warner, the people who create the company, who bring everything to life every day are an important, the important part of telling this story. They need to feel the power of what they do. They need to believe in the power of story every day in order to do their jobs, not just well, but with passion. Hey everyone, welcome to A Change of Brand, a show featuring behind-the-scenes stories of rebrand, glory, drama, or disaster. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Today's episode is on a brand that for moviegoers has been a steadfast prelude to some of our favorite moments on the big screen. In fact, you probably recognize this sound. And if you're a movie buff like I am, then you are really pumped about today's episode. In late 2019, Warner Brothers, or should we say Warner Bros, made headlines for replacing its 3D gold and blue shield with a much more modern flat and blue and white shield design. It was the company's first major logo rebranding since 1984. And behind the big screen, the entertainment space is a very complicated web of production companies, film companies, studios, actors, and agents, and more. And that's what creates the montage of logos at the beginning of some of our favorite films or shows. They typically have a pretty consistent sound, like a sonic branding piece, or a really consistent, thought-provoking, larger-than-life animated sequence. For example, the MGM Studios Lion is one of those that comes to mind, or the Universal Spinning Globe, or the Paramount Mountain. I really like the DreamWorks boy fishing off the little sliver of the half moon, or perhaps my favorite, the Pixar desk lamp that is so adorable. And of course, the Warner Bros. Shield. One thing that has caught my eye over the years is how these entertainment media brands have learned to customize their expression before a big feature film to integrate it into the movie itself. For example, I love the opening sequence of Lego Batman, where the overly macho, full-of-himself Batman gives you commentary on the opening credits. Black. All important movies start with a black screen and music. Edgy, scary music that would make a parent or studio executive nervous. And logos. Really long and dramatic logos. Warner Bros. Why not Warner Brothers? I don't know. DC. The house that Batman built. Yeah, what, Superman? Come at me, bro. I'm your kryptonite. Integrating the opening credits to feel like the start of the film, and not just credits slapped on beforehand, has been in and out of Warner Bros. movies for a while. Typically, the movie score starts and the Warner Bros. logo has some slight modification, perhaps color-wise treatment to match the film. Here are a few opening sequences from three classics that you might know. 
And just for fun, if you can guess which movie is which, DM us on Instagram. It's just a change of brand. And I will send a t-shirt to the first five listeners who get it right. Okay, here we go. Okay, how'd you do? Did you get all three? If so, be sure to DM us on Instagram. Now, look, we had to keep it kind of easy for you all, okay? So be sure to send in your responses, your answers right away. Warner Brothers is the force behind some of the most successful and well-known entertainment of our time. And for more context on their organization and what led up to the change of brand, let's go to brand strategist Sarah Gale Hughes for our briefing. Warner Bros. is a very recognizable and much-beloved brand. With almost 100 years of business under their belts, they have quite a legacy filled with incredible stories, stories of challenge and stories of success. Because of its natural connection to technology, the media industry has changed consistently since its inception, and Warner Bros. has been navigating those changes from the very start. Today is no different with the rising influence of streaming and the incredible accessibility and innovation offered from companies like Netflix, the need to be aligned, unique, and relevant with your brand is pretty essential. The story of Warner Bros. in and of itself is fascinating. It all started with the four Warner brothers, Harry, Albert, Sam, and Jack. The three elder brothers immigrated with their parents from Poland to Canada, and their youngest brother was born there. In the early 1900s, the brothers got a hold of a movie projector, they began to show films in mining towns in Pennsylvania and Ohio. Their business really began by showing the films. Then they eventually opened a theater. Then they got into the distribution business. And then they finally decided to produce movies themselves. It was in 1918 when they entered the Hollywood scene, opening their Warner Brothers film studio. And then they officially incorporated as Warner Bros. Pictures, Inc. in 1923. Sam and Jack would focus on the movies, while Albert and Harry would manage the business side of things. And over the next 40 years, the Warner Brothers experienced the ups and the downs of the film industry. They encountered transitioning to talkies, movies with sound. They navigated the Great Depression and World War II. They fought antitrust cases. And they handled the threat of television, all within the first few decades of their business alone. It was during this period that they also created films like Casablanca and characters like Bugs Bunny. Fun fact, Bugs Bunny debuted on the screen in 1940, but he is still to this day one of their most beloved character creations and is their official company mascot. 
Then, in the 1960s, the entire industry was struggling to transition from their previous Hollywood golden age. And Warner Bros. was no exception. It was then that Jack Warner, the majority owner of the studio, sold control of Warner Brothers. The next few decades of the company's success relied upon the efforts of big-name stars and the characters of DC Comics, a subsidiary of Warner Bros. In 1989, Warner Communications, the parent company of Warner Bros., merged with Time, creating what was known as Time Warner. And then, in the 90s, more subsidiaries of the company were created to focus on different audiences, like Warner Bros. Family Entertainment and the WB Television Network. Right around their 75th anniversary, the studio experienced a leadership change. But they continued to retain the success of the previous decades. And from 2000 to 2016, Warner Bros. was the only studio to cross $1 billion at the domestic box office every single year. Today, Warner Bros. is considered one of the big five American film studios, and the brand continues to house a lot of different companies, from a comic book publisher to a theme park. As Warner Bros. approached its centennial, they decided to take a look at their brand and consider if it matched their organizational identity, their values, their purpose, and their pride that was always at the core of who they were. They knew it was important to continue to acknowledge their heritage and the incredible history of Warner Brothers. But they also knew it was important to position their brand for the future in an industry full of innovation and increased competition. With an ever-evolving industry, an almost 100-year-old iconic company, and a real drive to align organizationally around a sense of purpose and value, they decided it was time to examine and evolve their brand. For close to 100 years, the Warner Brothers Shield has been their identifier as a company. It was first introduced in 1923 and slightly evolved over the decades, but for the most part has remained the same. The most recognizable version was established in 1937 with the big beveled edges, the sash across the front, and the large Art Deco WB letter forms. The gold was introduced in 1972, but presumed there even back in the black and white film era. The classic cumulus clouds in the background also first appeared in 1936 and have played a major visual role for the brand ever since. Now, there were some moments where the Warner Brothers logo departed from what we know today. Like in the late 60s, they sold or merged, it's not quite clear from my research, with seven arts and they created a big W that also branched off to form a seven. It's sort of like a George W. Bush sticker meets the 007 logo. There's also the Saul Bass logo debuted in 1972 that had no shield at all, but as an oval with a rounded stylized W inside, which was in use until 1984. And fun fact, the critically acclaimed movie, The Joker with Joaquin Phoenix opens with this retro Warner Brothers logo. The clouds, the golden shield, and the larger than life WB letters make it back on the big screen in 1984 and have been in place up until the rebrand we are discussing today. Needless to say, there is a lot of recognition and equity in this historical brand. And a big focus for our conversation will be how do you modernize a classic logo, making it more relevant, while also respecting and honoring the history and the equity of that mark? How do you not throw out the baby with the bathwater? The 2019 Warner Brothers rebrand is not without controversy. Some critics claimed the redesign threw away something most brands don't have historical equity. 
They did, in fact, strip away the famous golden color, removed that sash, and simplified down the shield, keeping the blue and the tall WB letter forms inside. A custom typeface was also designed to mimic the type from the 1936 logo, and it really gives the brand an authentic and proprietary feel. My favorite part of the work is how the simplified Warner Bros. shield can flex to take on the identity of the show it's endorsing. Through various backgrounds, color, texture, etc., the new Warner Bros. logo becomes a part of the film's narrative or identity, flexing and changing from show to show, which I must say I think is brilliant. You can actually see this new logo debut in Christopher Nolan's 2020 film, Tenet. Be sure to see all of the rebrand work for yourself at achangeofbrand.com. Just click on the episode and scroll down to see the breakdown. Pentagram, one of the most well-known design firms in the world, was behind the work, and I had a chance to sit down and discuss the process with Emily Oberman, a partner out of their New York office who oversaw the effort. And I have to be honest, she's kind of a big deal. She's designed identities for many well-known entertainment brands like the TV show 30 Rock, The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, the SNL opening credits for the past 19 years. She's done work for DC Comics, J.K. Rowling, and Steven Spielberg himself, just to name a few highlights. She grew up in Yonkers, New York, where her mother was a painter and an illustrator, and her father was a famous graphic designer in his own right. And she followed in their creative footsteps. My mother is a painter and an illustrator. My father, a graphic designer. They both went to Cooper Union. So I grew up in an art and music filled household. I also went to Cooper Union in their footsteps. I sort of went into the family business, which is a little bit different from other graphic designers, I think, who have to explain to their parents what it is that they do. Whereas in my household, my parents knew all too well what I did and were able to criticize with precision. (laughs) That is a different dynamic. I had to explain to my dad a lot. And he still to this day thinks I just build websites, which we don't even really do that. (laughs) That's the only parallel he can connect with. So the total opposite for you. Complete opposite. Can be just as frustrating and cutting, but in a very different way. She's worked for some of the hottest agencies in New York and started her own firm, Number 17, which she coincidentally ran for about 17 years before joining the ranks at Pentagram as a partner. At Number 17, we started doing the titles for SNL, which we did for many years and I continued to do when I moved to Pentagram, having just completed the 46th season opener now. And from Number 17, when we decided that it was time to For each of us to try something different and something new, I was fortunate enough to be invited in to be a partner at Pentagram, which was, I don't want to say a lifelong dream because it's not like while I was running number 17, I was thinking, ooh, I wish I was at Pentagram. But it was a nice coincidence to be able to be brought into a world of designers who were my heroes and my friends and watch them create design magic all around me. And it sort of helps, it helps up your game, I think, to have these sort of geniuses around you all the time as your partners. Since then, I've been working really hard to be worthy of the other partners. Before we get into the Warner Bros. rebrand, there's a bit of a story before a story, a a prequel, if you will. And it started with a not-for-profit called Film Independent, who helps independent filmmakers, you guessed it, make their films. Well, they came to Pentagram in hopes that they could update their identity. So the people who create Film Independent 
came to Pentagram sort of on a long shot, thinking we don't really have the money, we're a not-for-profit organization, but we really need to rethink our identity and our strategic positioning. So we're going to ask if Pentagram would be interested. They had seen the SNL titles, and so they reached out. I met with Josh Welch, who is the president, and I love film. I am a film geek my whole life. I instantly identified with what Film Independent does and stands for, and we agreed to do their identity on the spot. The thing about not-for-profit organizations like this is that they have a board, and there was a board put together as the task force to head up this redesign. And it was run by a woman named Sue Kroll and another woman named Mary Sweeney. Mary Sweeney is an Academy Award winning film editor and brilliant woman. And Sue Kroll at the time was the head of marketing at Warner Brothers. I loved and respected both of these women immediately. They're brilliant. They are smart. They are forceful. They knew what they wanted. They knew what they needed. And we worked together really well. One day, post-film independent, Sue Kroll called me and said, I have a project that I'm working on at Warner Brothers. Would you be interested in helping me? We're struggling a little bit. Would you mind taking a stab at it? I said, yes. And Sue said, all right, the film is Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. It's kind of a prequel to the Harry Potter films. So immediately I was even more excited because I'm a Harry Potter person. Uh, My whole team, we'd all read all the books and seen the movies. So we jumped in whole cloth. That went very well. And after that, Sue would ask us to work on different projects along the way. And one of them, for instance, was the redesign of the identity for DC Comics, which we also did the strategy for. And I should say we did the strategic work for Film Independent and then strategic work for DC. And then because of this relationship with Sue, I was approached by Warner Brothers proper. I got a call from Dee Dee Myers and Barry Zeal. And we talked about this Warner Brothers project and dove into it immediately. I don't know whether they were speaking to anyone else at the time. I don't recall having to go through a pitch phase. We don't generally pitch. Anyway, there was definitely an RFP and a proposal, but it seemed like uh, a job that we were destined for from that first call. So you've got this relationship that's been ongoing for, I would assume, a few years. You get an opportunity for a larger Warner Brothers project. What was the problem that Warner Brothers brought to the table for you to solve? Believe it or not, when Warner Brothers approached us, they said that they did not have a strategic position that they could articulate themselves One of the reasons that they wanted to do this is they were approaching the 100th anniversary of the existence of Warner Brothers. And when I spoke to Dee Dee Myers, who's the executive vice president of Worldwide Corporate Communications and Public Affairs, as well as Barry Zeal, who is the senior vice president of public affairs and senior of strategic initiatives, Mm -hmm. um, they came to us with the idea that they needed, as they approached their 100th anniversary, a way to talk about the company that they hadn't been able to articulate before. And I think this was surprising to both them, 
and myself that they did not have this. They had attempted to make something work for themselves over the many, many years, but had never come to something that everyone had agreed on. Um, Mm. At the same time, they also felt like their identity was feeling a little dusty and Mm. also a little bit hard to use. Uh, The Warner Brothers shield is obviously iconic, But at the time, it was very three-dimensional, very gold. It had this sash that ran in front of it that obscured the W and the B. And so they were having a hard time not just using it, but using it across the brand. Every different department was using a different logo differently. And so they wanted something that felt unified across the brand. Not so unified as to be homogenized, not so unified as to be boring and flat, even if it was an actual flat icon, but unified so that it didn't feel messy, which Mm. it currently was feeling. Uh, But And importantly, they needed some way to talk about themselves, both internally and externally. One of the main reasons for that was times are changing. Netflix was growing and what a studio, what a traditional film studio is and does was changing and evolving. And Warner wanted to find a way to change and evolve with the times so that they didn't feel like this large dinosaur in relation to something like a Netflix that seems nimble. And so that was our task. How did you go about solving that problem? I mean, there's three sort of main issues there. What is your approach to the first step? What do you do to start solving those problems? So the way we approached it was strategy first and finding how to tell that story for them. So we began by interviewing a tremendous amount of people. I also want to say we set up a system where my team and I had a set of collaborators that we worked with on a daily basis. Our our day-to-day contacts were Barry Zeal and Katie Kochka. Um, and we worked with them very, very closely to figure out the structure of how we would interview people and what we would do. This is a global organization. Then beyond that, there was something that we called the Brand Council, which was a group of people from the different divisions who we would then talk to about where we were heading and they would counsel us. And then after that, we would move on to the explaining the idea to the corporation as a whole, including the chairman and CEO. So, and the way we did that was by setting up a series of interviews around the globe. We did, I think, 45 different individual interviews with people talking to them about the brand, both in terms of its position in the world, its context, and its future. We also did roundtable discussions with over 150 employees globally, because one of the important things that we felt, and Warner Brothers, to their credit, felt was that we needed to really understand the brand from top to bottom. That it wasn't just speaking to people at the EVP level. It was really about talking to everyone, talking to people who were new at their jobs, talking to people who were there for a long time, talking to people in creative positions, talking to people in the finance department about what it is and what it means to be at Warner Brothers and to be part of this world. Then we also did six 
what we called creator groups, which were blind discussions, not about Warner Brothers, but about the state of the world of entertainment and technology in general. And we brought in 45 different people from, you know, gaming and virtual reality and mixed reality and investment to talk about what the future was going to be and why people were feeling like something like Netflix or Hulu was positioned to move forward in a way that was different from a Warner Brothers or an HBO or a 20th Century Fox. So we did all of this investigating and had all of these conversations over months because they were global. It was in Brazil and in China and London and several places in the United States, just to really feel like we understood what we were dealing with and what we could tackle and how we could accurately talk about Warner Brothers, because it's important for it to come from a place of truth. It had to feel like what we were saying about this company, this hundred year old company, wasn't brand washing, wasn't putting something new onto something that existed. It was about finding what really was at the core of who Warner is. I want to jump in here real quick and just highlight something that I think is important. The previous two minutes of what Emily just shared helps you understand what is required to lead such a massive corporation through a rebrand. It's not just about sitting down and designing a logo. A rebrand process of this magnitude for an organization of this size and scale is much more difficult than that. So after Emily and her team go through months of research, investigation, and initial strategic directions, they get ready to share it with the Warner Brothers team. So that was a little bit of a surprise to me, having worked with large corporations before. The directness of the communication that we had with everyone was impressive and helpful. When we approach strategy, I like to think that we approach strategy in a way that's slightly different than I would say a standard strategic agency since we do it from an identity position and a design position. So we come at it from the idea of language and writing and the story that we can tell. So we approached them with this idea of there were four different places that we felt that they could position themselves that could be honestly ownable. One was the idea of Connecting, that Warner is able to connect people around the world through what they do. Another idea was the idea of innovation, which for a movie studio is something that none of the others were exactly keying into because Warner has a history of being innovators. First talkie, the bullet camera from The Matrix, they are innovators in terms of technology and ways of storytelling. So that was something that we thought they could honestly own. We also thought that they could own the idea of inclusion, that they are very interested. And we found this honestly in the way they hire people and the way they treat people throughout the organization. This idea that inclusion was really important to them. And of course, the idea that they are, you know, in a world of excellence with franchises like Harry Potter or working with Clint Eastwood for his entire career. So those seemed like interesting ways in for them. And we brought that to the table. And those were good as part of the story. 
But the story that we came to for them was all about storytelling. Like that, that is the thing that they are driven by. That is something that they, that gets them out of bed in the morning. The idea that they are going to tell the best stories any way they can, whether it's through a game or whether it's a television show or a franchise. The idea is about letting a filmmaker tell their story honestly, letting an audience hear a story honestly, letting a gamer live through a story honestly. So it was all about storytelling for Mm -hmm. them. And that was something that rang true in a way because we heard it from everyone in each level of position at the company. You know, we spoke to people who worked on set who felt that way. We spoke to people, as I said, in the finance department who felt like they were going to Warner Brothers to help bring great stories to the world. And so it was just a nice position for them to have that felt authentic for the hundred years. Tell us a little bit about the design process. So you've kind of aligned, you know, this core group and the brand council around the strategic direction with storytelling. What happened after that? How did you translate that into some of the creative work were there conversations up front about the existing equity with the seal as it as it existed then? Were there sort of iterations of quick ideas? How, how did you switch gears from strategic casting vision, getting them excited about this position to some sort of creative expression? So the two are not mutually exclusive. Like it's not like there's a switch, like you finish the strategy and you move on to the visuals. They're sort of both being bubbled up together. In the beginning, you're spending more time figuring out the strategy. But at the same time, we were looking at and understanding the history of the brand visually. And when we first approached this idea, and when we were first approached, everyone talked about the possibility that Maybe we completely modernize and lose the shield and become Warner and become this sort of very modern company that doesn't emphasize the history because you don't want to make them seem like an old company. Um, But in doing all of this and in coming to the idea of the power of story for them, the iconic quality of that shield was something undeniable. I mean, there are people who talked about the pride that they feel when they hand someone their business card and it has that shield on it. And so the shield became something that we knew we had to keep but evolve. And one of our tests for why the shield needed to evolve was looking at it in the context of the other brands, other big iconic brands, not just within the entertainment industry, but just in general, if you look at, if you hold up the Warner Shield in relation to the Target logo or the Apple logo or the icon of Mickey Mouse, as it stood when we started, the Warner Shield was intricate and old and detailed in a way that made it feel unrelated to those icons. It made it feel less nimble. And I have to say, in terms of studios, Warner's a pretty nimble studio. They do a lot of different kinds of content. They are willing to 
try new things and change. And so we wanted them to be able to live within this modern world and seem of the same mindset. So we knew we had to keep the shield and we spent a lot of time looking at the history of the shield. There are many, 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 many iterations of that icon, many of them still existing simultaneously on the Warner lot. So we spent a lot of times walking around the lot, photographing this version of the shield and that version of the shield and this one and this one next to that one. And the two things next to each other, you know, on a truck, there was one version of the logo on the hood and one version of the logo on the back. And so we looked at all of it and studied the letter forms and the symmetry within the shield. And I also just have to add, as someone who is a film geek lover, being able to wander around the Warner lot, photographing logos and walking down iconic, you know, sets. Oh, (laughs) this was a dream for me. Eating in the commissary. Oh my God. Uh, you know, I wanted there to be like showgirls with like plumes on their heads sitting at the tables in the commissary. That didn't happen, but there was a lot of like, <laughs> you know, stage doors open with half sets being rolled in. That was just, <sighs> just the best. And did you think, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. I thought that a lot. That's awesome. A lot. And my whole team, because again, I have to say, I certainly don't do this alone. There was a team of dedicated strategists and designers who worked on this, and we would all wander around this iconic lot just with our jaws open and joy in our hearts. Okay, when we come back from the break, we learn how Emily and team face their toughest challenge yet. Could a potential acquisition on the horizon sidetrack all of their hard work? All that and more after the break. Hey, everybody. I want to take a quick minute and give a hat tip to Matchstick. It's where I work, and it's our producing partner for this show. We specialize in helping growing brands take their identity to the next level. If you need help clarifying your message or standing out in the market, be sure to visit us at matchstick.com. That's M-A-T-C-H-S-T-I-C. One more quick thing. If you're enjoying this series so far, be sure to tell a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To sweeten the deal, we're going to be giving away weekly prizes to our favorite reviews. In fact, we have five this week for you. JHS540, Hello WU, Emma Lynn H, Wannabe Creative underscore NG, and Baseball 25 GH. Thank you for your review, my fellow brand nerds. If that's you, be sure to send me an email, Blake at matchstick.com or DM us on Instagram. Okay, back to the show. Describe the first time the Warner Brothers team started to see the evolved shield. What was it? A pretty iterative, collaborative process? Was there like a big moment that you presented your team's take on how it should evolve. Walk us through that creative process and presentation for the Warner team. So we didn't do like a tissue session with them in terms of collaboration. We didn't have like a million logos up on the wall and let everyone sort of wander around and talk about that. In the end, what we presented was 
three variations on what the shield could be. Within the world of the shield, there was one that was pretty close in, one that was sort of, I guess, in the middle, and one that was an out there version of the shield. Uh, We did share with them a video that we made, an edit that we made of every single drawing of the shield that we did. So we made this little fast-paced loop of like 200 drawings, different drawings of the shield to sort of have them understand how much work went into getting to the place that we were. Yeah, which is a brilliant way to, to do it because you don't want it to be a single slide with a bunch of little shield dots and then someone say, hey, go back to that slide number three. Let's look at those. And you're like, nope, nope, those got cut. You have to, you have exactly. to trust that they're gone. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of a nice, hey, we did all this work. And here it is. And somehow your brain, as you're watching it, acclimates to that and you can sort of slow down and get to the final one in the end and it feels really resolved. And so again, the sharing with them the three directions was then a very, I think, collaborative moment. There was definitely one we all felt was the right direction and the Warner team was in agreement. It wasn't a difficult process. The details of all of it then became very nuanced whether we add a little, you know, a line around the edge to give it a little bit of heft. Um, We redrew the W and the B so that they made more of a sort of pleasing connection. We brought the shape of the shield, which was very squat and wide. We brought it back to sort of an earlier, more classic version of the shield um, and then redrew the W and the B in a way that feels more connected within the letter forms that I really like. We are history buffs. I love using history to get to what is right for the present day. And I think that we did that well with Warner. It does not feel fake and it doesn't feel out of place when you look at the history of the Warner logos, we felt very strongly about creating a version that was flat, that you could use really small, really simply, that was clean and modern. And the nice thing about that is that was not out of place for the history of Warner logos. They have had flat logos in the past. So it wasn't like we were just flattening something for flat sake. We also then created a version that does have a rule around the edge, a rim. And the reason that we did that was so that at the front of every Warner movie, they take the Warner logo and treat it in the style of the film. They do a level of storytelling with how the logo is presented at the beginning of the film. It's kind of part of the overture to the story of the film. And so we added this edge that allows there to be a little bit more depth and a little bit more tooth for the films. So there's a flat version for modernity's sake, for scale, um, for cleanliness, and there's a slight 3D version for film and animation that I think works really nicely. And again, they feel related without feeling forced. Yeah. Were there any concerns on the the Warner side about losing some of the gold or losing some of the realism and 
3D sort of feel that the old one had? Were, were there conversations about that, concerns, or was everyone sort of you know, on the same page about the flat blue? Everyone was so ready to release that gold, that dimension, that it was so hard to use. And again, it felt very out of place. The other thing that was important is uh, there was that sash that went across the logo that said Warner Brothers in it in, I think, Times New Roman. And the problem was they were using that sash to label every single division. So it either said Warner Brothers or it said International Global Television. And if it had to say International Global Television in that sash, it had to be extremely condensed and smaller and you couldn't read it anyway. So that was another thing that everyone was very happy to get rid of. And getting rid of that led us to create a typeface, a bespoke typeface for Warner Brothers that is based on the W and the B within the shield, but a sort of very modernized version of it. Cleaned up, some of the curves are taken from the curves in the shield, but it is designed to be a clean, modern typeface that they can use for headlines and for divisions that doesn't have to be crammed into that sash. One of the joys of designing typefaces is naming them. And the Warner Brothers typeface is called That's All Fonts. <laughs> Did you come up with that name? Or was, was that like a, like a cheesy dad somewhere that had a good dad joke to, to slide in at the last minute? All good typeface names are cheesy dad jokes. And <laughs> one of the associate partners from Pentagram on my team came up with that name, Tim Cohan, named That's All Fonts. He also, I just, I have to throw in, when we were working on Crimes of Grindelwald, we created a bespoke typeface for that. He also named that one, and that one is called Crimes New Roman. Wow. He has a gift. <laughs> he has a gift. Is that, is that on his title now? It's like associate partner and typeface namer. Not just typeface designer, but typeface namer. Yes. Yeah. And one that I'm sure he is very, very proud of. Okay, so Emily and team have a new visual identity that they feel great about for Warner Brothers. They've helped them position around their commitment and the power of storytelling. And everything seems to be headed towards a happy ending. But what happens next is very unexpected, which can happen in a big project like this. Just as the Pentagram and Warner Brothers team were feeling good about the new direction of the identity, they catch wind that Warner Brothers is getting acquired by AT&T. That added a level of drama to this project that was unexpected. So we were working on this project when the AT&T merger started and continued throughout the length of the project. And so we were always sort of wondering how that was going to affect what we were doing. We were pretty far along in strategy and identity when it finally came to pass. We had to make sure that we were aligned with AT&T and we wondered whether we were going to have to go back and recreate our values or relook at our values to align more with AT&T's values. We wondered, I think, at times whether there would be a halt to the whole thing. Happily, there wasn't. And our values 
And when I say values, I mean within the term mission, vision, values, not our personal values, did align nicely with what AT&T already had in existence for themselves, as well as what they were looking for for Warner. So that transition went, I don't want to say smoothly because it was a, it was difficult. It was hard. It was a big, big deal. And I don't want to make it seem like it was just like that. I know lots of other people were working very, very hard to make this transition as smooth as possible. So I don't want to just be flip about it. It was a lot of work. Um, and it was amazing watching Barry and Dee Dee and Katie evolve this large project in a way that kept it moving smoothly and seamlessly. There were, you know, pauses, there were long pauses. Yeah. But I applaud them for the wonderful job that they did of managing to get this done well. Emily and the Warner Bros. team have had some potential clouds brewing on the horizon. And like a slow-mo Neo in the Matrix, they were able to dodge a few bullets during the acquisition which I can say from experience is not always the case. Leadership changes are notorious for slamming the brakes on major rebrand efforts. Next, they turn their attention to rolling it out across the organization. And then everything was rolled out to the company on a specific day where we created these packages that everyone got that had the new manifesto, the new brand position, the new mantra in it, as well as swag and ID badges. And that was a very important and focused goal for us was getting it to the point where we could unveil this to all of Warner Brothers. Because I also want to say one of the important things about being able to talk about Warner Brothers in a very specific strategic way to have a position that everyone can get behind is an internal need. Do you want to be able to have every single person who works at the company be able to articulate why it is that they come to work every day? Because honestly, brands are built from the inside. The people who work at Warner, the people who create the company, who bring everything to life every day are an important, the important part of telling this story. They need to feel the power of what they do. They need to believe in the power of story every day in order to do their jobs, not just well, but with passion. And so that moment of unveiling this company-wide was extremely important in terms of how it then unfurls out into the world. So I believe that people were incredibly excited about the change. Lisa Gregorian, the chief marketing officer of television, at Warner made a wonderful film that was part of the launch of the identity, sort of talking to people and having everyone from every position in the organization talk about their belief in the power of story and how that works and how that unfolds. And that film was presented to the company along with the new identity and the unveiling of the new logo on the iconic water tower at Warner Brothers on the studio lot. And there was a palpable joy and energy at the company on that day. I think everyone was very excited about being able to lean into a specific focus together. You do very public design work. You know, SNL is seen by millions of people, which I love this season. I've paid extra close attention since 
we talked before and the handwriting is just so fun. I love it. So oh. anyway, you do very Thank public you. work, you know, as seen on SNL. And there's always critics of those who will question work when it's that broad or seen by that many people. And there were some critics here who questioned the move away from the gold or losing some of the overall recognition. One website that I looked at did some testing and it said that 89% of people preferred the old logo. And, you know, the internet had some other articles about losing recognition for Warner Brothers. That does just come with the territory of change. Did you have to coach Warner through that ahead of time? Or did you have discussions with Warner as this went public and rolled out and launched? How did you sort of deal with that? And how did you coach them through it? We definitely talked with the Warner team beforehand about people hate change. There's going to be blowback. It's going to happen. And to their credit, again, these guys are pros. They know that. And they knew that they wanted change. And they knew that there would be people who would say, oh, I liked it better before. But they were not daunted by that. Neither were we in this instant. I'm a, I'm the kind of person who like takes every single cruddy thing that someone says on the internet personally. This time, I, I, I didn't. And I'm not saying that to be cocky. I'm saying that because I feel like we did a good job of evolving the identity while keeping its soul. We did not stomp all over it. We kept the history of Warner in our mind's eye and in our actual eye while we were working on this. The site that did that, I don't know where they got their, who they interviewed or where they got that information. I did not find that. I did not see a great you know, outcry about ruining what Warner Brothers stood for, you know, to the point where I would say there are probably people who don't even really realize that it was redesigned. Like it's not that we threw out the baby and the bathwater. We kept the soul of the brand. Whenever a new identity comes out into the world, there are people who will hate it. It is impossible to avoid that. And especially I think people in the entertainment industry don't like change or just people in general don't like change. So it can't be avoided. I will say it disheartens me when it's other designers tearing down design because I think that we ought to be supporting each other and building each other up as opposed for poking holes in hard work that we all do. Yeah, There are people who criticize things and forget when they're criticizing things that there was a client and that client mm -hmm. had an opinion and that opinion had to be nuanced and evolved. And there are parameters when you do something I, I've done, this is separate from Warner. I've done redesigns of logos where the logo had to change because of some legal reason. And because of whatever those legalities were, you had to change it. Again, no, I'm not talking about Warner Brothers. And people then in the world look at the things that you've done and just sort of spew thoughts and vitriol. And again, these are people who work in the same profession that I do who forget that there might be reasons that things get done a certain way. And, yeah. and that is, I think, disheartening to me as someone who is a member of a community where I think we're all in this together. We're all here yeah. doing our best every day to make something work. Back to Warner Brothers, I think that we did well. I am proud of the work that we did. And I think that the 
history is still there. The through line is still there. And the logo feels elegant in a way that is built on the shoulders of all of the Warner brand that came before it. Most identities, the thing that I like to say is give it a minute, like look at it, live with it and give it a minute and understand what it was meant to be used for. Because any identity is not fully baked on day one. It has to sit and settle and be used properly and be seen and become part of the world before you really know what it can do, what it should do, what it's meant to do. And judging it harshly immediately, which is something the internet is very, very, very good at, isn't the way a lasting and evolving identity should be judged. And speaking of judging, if I was a critic on Rotten Tomatoes, I would rate this rebrand saga with a certified fresh rating. I am incredibly impressed with the perseverance of Emily, her team, and the Warner Bros. team that navigated a big landmine with the AT&T acquisition in the middle of the project. And by the way, Emily also redesigned the Rotten Tomatoes identity as we know it today. And I must say, I'm a big fan of the design work. I think they honored the history while creating something fitting for 2020 and beyond. And after doing a little bit of digging, changing the logo to fit the film isn't that new to Warner Brothers. Even back in 1938, the company modified its logo to be more fitting for the adventures of Robin Hood. And with the new positioning of the power of storytelling in mind, I love how the Warner Brothers shield can flex to reinforce the power of the story that is being told in front of you on screen right now. It makes it less about Warner Brothers and more about the story. It's also worth noting that this project took about 18 to 24 months, according to Emily, which seems like a long time when you see the final work. You think, geez, it took how long to land on this simple blue shield? Or, geez, you paid how much for that simple shield? But the duration just highlights how much is required in a process like this. Fine-tuning type, calibrating exact colors, designing hundreds of shields and mock-ups, and getting buy-in from multiple layers of executives to ensure everyone is aligned is much more like a Martin Scorsese trilogy than a Baby Shark YouTube short. Good quality just takes more time. Once again, we've heard in many episodes already this season this theme around trust between the client and the agency. And I think that is critical for success in a rebrand initiative. It was really important to go through this process with people I trusted and respected who trusted and respected us. So, and those people that I trusted and respected were my own team, Todd Goldstein, Tim Cohan, Tom Grunwald, Jeremy Mickle, the strategists, Greg Morrison, that team on my side were people that I respected and trusted. And then on the client side, Barry and Katie and Dee Dee and Lisa and Blair, Rich and Sue Kroll were important because they trusted and respected us as well. So there was a mutual level of appreciation that made the work all about the work. Mm. all about getting to the right place and the right solution. And I feel like that was important given 
the size and the scale of the project, given the length of time that it took, given the changes that were happening in the industry and within the company over this course of time, was, I think, the most valuable piece of this. My last thought on this rebrand is timing. Just a few months after launch, the world and especially the entertainment industry was going to come to a grinding halt because of COVID-19. Moviegoers stopped going to the movies and we all became home first content consumers. It is a new day in the entertainment world and there has never been a better time for a 100-year-old brand to become more modern, flexible, and agile. I asked Emily what she thought about the timing and the brand as she sees it today. We are in a strange place because the world changed not that long after that. So what the movie industry is, what the entertainment industry is, how it works, how it rolls out, how it is seen by consumers is very much in flux at this moment in time because of COVID, because of the pandemic, because we're all getting our entertainment through our screens in our homes in a way that nobody expected when we were working on this brand refresh. I think that there's something strong about the new identity that translates to the simplicity of the way entertainment is being delivered to homes right now. I like the way that I see the brand in my screen, on my app, in whatever device I'm using to distract myself from the world crashing down around me. I think that they are doing a really good job of using it well and feeling like a modern company that is moving forward and figuring out what the world is. I have been, you know, delightfully surprised. Uh, at the end of things that I've watched or at the beginning of things that I've watched to see them using the identity well. I haven't obviously been to the lot in at least eight months, so I don't know what's going on there. I guess lots of people haven't been to the lot, so I don't know how that's rolling out. But I think it was worth it, and I think it really actually is a strong visual in a moment where we're all staring at our screens a lot. Okay, thanks for listening and a special thank you to Emily Oberman for her time and giving us an inside look into this process. To see more visuals from today's episode and to see the before and after, head on over to achangeofbrand.com. Just click on the Warner Bros episode and you can see the breakdown. And if you liked today's show, share it with a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We very much appreciate it. Today's episode was edited by Matt Owen. Special thanks to Sarah Gale Hughes for the brief in and Malik Falks for today's artwork. I'm your host, Blake Howard, signing off.